0: This is The Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo, Sponsored by Amazon, Audible, HostGator, Gamefly, and supporters of independent media like you. Hey guys, welcome to The Humanist Report podcast. My name is Mike Figueroa, and this is the 56th episode of the podcast. Before we get started, I have to send a thank you to the latest people who decided to join the independent media revolution. Today we have Terry Haber who decided to become a Patreon patron. We also have Nancy Whiteman who signed up to become a VIP member on humanistreport.com and we also have an anonymous individual who decided to become a member as well. So thank you to all of these individuals. If you too would like to become a member or a Patreon patron, you can visit the links down in the description box below. But as I always say, never feel pressure to do that. As long as you can watch, that's all I can ever hope for. So on today's episode, I'm going to be talking about how the Green Party Town Hall on CNN aired. And I'll kind of discuss Jill Stein's appearance also on Fox News and BBC. And, you know, it's going to be a Green Party-filled episode. So I'm excited about that. I'll also give you an update on the class action lawsuit filed against the DNC by Bernie Sanders supporters, and additionally, I'll talk about how Bernie-backed Democrat Zephyr Teachout is taking on the donor class, and it's great. Now, I'll also discuss how Bernie Sanders renewed his call for a public option, and it really illustrated just how spineless the Democratic Party establishment really is. Also, anti-gay lobbyist Tony Perkins made an insidious comment that is now coming back to bite him in the ass. Finally, Hillary Clinton is going to be taking steps to curtail the perception of corruption surrounding the Clinton Foundation. How? Well, I will let you know. But before we get to those, we're going to jump into the weekly dose. Hopefully, you guys enjoy the episode. In a world of politics dominated by the
1: strange, the deranged, and outright insane, we'll now take a moment to shine a light on the craziest of what politics has to offer. This is your weekly... Dose of stupidity.
0: To your point, I mean, if she does take quite a while longer, mm. what happens to other folks who want to get to run against her? Because
1: she's doing what they call in politics freezing pockets. Because the donors are giving her money thinking she's going to run. That means they're not going to have available money for other exactly. candidates if she doesn't. And I don't think she's going to give it to them.
0: She's on her way
2: to deciding. We'll see. About deciding. We
1: couldn't help her any more than we have. I know. You know I mean? She's, she's I got just a free ride so far from the media. We're the biggest ones promoting her campaign. So, gotcha, bitch! We couldn't help her any more than we have. I know. You know. What I mean, she's, she's I got just a free ride so far from the media. We're the biggest ones promoting her campaigns. No shit. Yeah, we're the biggest ones promoting her campaigns. Duh! Yeah, we're the biggest ones promoting our campaigns. Under those eight years, before Obama came along, we didn't have any successful radical Islamic terrorist attack in the United States. They all started when Clinton and Obama got into office. ISIS is honoring President Obama. He is the founder of ISIS. He's the founder of ISIS, okay? He's the founder. He founded ISIS.
0: What the fuck? What the fuck? You're so dumb. You are really dumb, for
3: real. Stupidity.
0: So, the Green Party Town Hall on CNN aired on August 17th, featuring Jill Stein, of course, and her running mate, Ajamu Baraka, and I wanted to give you guys my thoughts on that because I had a lot to say about it. Uh, Now, first of all, before I even get into the substance, I just want to say I really hope that there's more of these because since we got all of the controversies out of the way and and cleared up the misconceptions that Jill is an anti-vaxxer, which is untrue, Now I want a town hall dedicated exclusively to policy now that that's all aside. And I think that uh, that would help Jill Stein maybe reach 15% to get onto the debate stage. But time is running out, so we have to act quickly. So I really do hope that CNN does do more of these. Overall, I think that Jill Stein shined. Uh, I can't describe her as anything other than brilliant. She blew me away. And every time I hear her speak, the sadness that I feel about Bernie Sanders not winning It kind of goes away because Jill Stein is just like Bernie Sanders. You cannot get her to talk about anything other than policy. And that's what I love. That's what I look for in a candidate. And that's why I'm very excited about Jill Stein, particularly after watching this town hall. I was already excited I was already a huge Jill Stein enthusiast, but, I mean, this just cemented that. Now, the thing that I love is that when she talks, I'm not just inspired, but I'm actually educated. The facts that she keeps in her mind, I don't know how she has room for all that up there, but, I mean, she talked about how uh, the U.S. has between 700 and 900 military bases, and worldwide, all of the other countries have about 30 combined. No idea. I had no idea about that. Now, also, the way that she challenges mainstream political views that are They're basically seen as dominant, and you're not supposed to challenge them, like, cutting military spending. Jill Stein does it, and she does it masterfully, so that way not only does she put forth a good argument, but she makes anyone seem unreasonable who didn't think to criticize this position anyway. Like, why is it that we're spending 57% of our discretionary budget on military spending? It, it doesn't make sense. And Jill Stein explains that in a way that I think really resonates with the American people. Now, my favorite part is her
4: response to a Bernie supporter and how she actually thanked them. Thank you so much for having changed the political landscape forever. So big thank you to all of the Sanders supporters. And the political system will never be the same. And what I have to say is that You've learned, really, in real time, why it is that you can't have a revolutionary campaign in a counter-revolutionary party. Bernie did everything right, and his supporters did everything right, but the playing field was really steeply and um, uh, unfairly. Tilted against you from super delegates to super Tuesdays to voting irregularities to the emails that showed how the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, was colluding behind closed doors with Hillary Clinton's campaign to smear Bernie Sanders in the press. And this was extremely uh, unfair. And then Hillary now, you know, has really moved to court Republicans. Uh, has sort of an official committee to bring republicans over. She's appointed a centrist uh, vice presidential candidate. Uh, they did not allow some of the uh, Sanders spokespeople to have a role in the, uh, at the convention. Bernie himself was relegated to a very low profile role. So what I'd say is all the work you did and the incredible Uh, passion and vision and blood sweat and tears that you put into that campaign that lives on and Bernie himself said it's a movement it's not a man and I it's clear Hillary does not represent what you were working for our campaign has been here from the start many people have looked to us from Bernie's campaign as plan B so that if they ran into trouble they could continue building this revolutionary campaign but now all the stronger for being inside of a revolutionary party that supports the work that you're doing and will continue to build it now getting to
0: the issue of foreign policy Again, she nailed it, and I think this is one of her strongest points. Um, So, she talked about cutting military spending in half, as I mentioned, but I think that this is a really bold move in a political climate where Republicans are saying that we have this broken-down military, you know, they're using old equipment, and we're just so weak, we're powerless, and we're going to get attacked, we're vulnerable, but for her to actually come up with facts and challenge that narrative— I love it. People need to hear this. Even if it's the case that Jill Stein only reaches out to a small crowd, we need to plant that seed that no, our military is not this weakened force. It's the strongest, most powerful military in the world and we are in fact spending more money than the next several nations combined. Uh, She also correctly pointed out how Israel's illegal occupation of Palestine, it makes them a target. So by actually telling Israel that we don't support this illegal behavior and being consistent and saying we don't support, you know, illegal activity from the Saudis or any one of our other allies, She's really making a great point, and there was that moment in there where the lady tried to do the gotcha and paint her as this anti-Israeli individual, and usually people who do this, they like to throw out the word anti-Semitic. If you criticize Israel, any and all criticisms are tantamount to you hating Jewish people, but Jill Stein is Jewish, so you can't use that card. And also, she's consistent. You can't get her for being inconsistent. The same standard that she applies to Israel, she also applies to Saudi Arabia and Iran and every other country I love it. Now, there were parts of the town hall that rubbed me the wrong way, and this isn't because of Jill Stein, but there was the religious question. Okay, this is a waste of time. This comes up in debates. This comes up in in town halls all the time, and it's a waste of time. Look, are you honestly telling me that If Jill Stein gave the wrong answer that you wouldn't vote for her just because of her religious predisposition, it doesn't make any sense to me. I don't get why this is a question that we're asking in 2016. It's time to move on. It's time to grow up. And move past religion, okay? This is something that you don't ask to someone who wants to lead the country. You ask this to a friend or a family member, and you can have a discussion about that. But I don't give a shit about her religious beliefs or lack thereof. What I care about is the policy substance. So the fact that CNN would even filter out certain questions and allow this one to come through, it's so frustrating because they do it every single time. Now, also, the questions about vaccines was frustrating, Uh, I mean, I think it was important, but at the same time, anyone who was curious as to Jill Stein's stance on vaccines, it could have been cleared up with a five-minute Google search. The minute I heard that Jill Stein was an anti-vaxxer, I looked it up, And it was immediately demolished. It's not true. She is not an anti-vaxxer. She's a medical doctor. Now, you can disagree with some of her other policies when it comes to science, like GMOs and whatnot, but she's not an anti-vaxxer. I wouldn't support an anti-vaxxer. Donald Trump is an anti-vaxxer. He's the true anti-vaxxer. Nobody presses Donald Trump on that stance, though. Jill Stein, however... They can't attack her on the policy substance, so they have to pivot to these non-substantive attacks that have been debunked over and over and over and over and over. Now, when it comes to what rubbed me the wrong way in this town hall, we get to this part. Dr. Stein, given the way our political system works, effectively, you could help Donald Trump like Ralph Nader helped George Bush in 2000. How could you sleep at night?
4: I will have trouble sleeping at night if uh, Donald Trump is elected. I will also have trouble sleeping at night if Hillary Clinton is elected. <laughs> and as um, despicable as Donald Trump's words are, uh, I find Hillary Clinton's actions and track record is very troubling. So Donald Trump uh, you know, is, uh, bashes immigrants and is a xenophobic and racist uh, loudmouth uh, but Hillary Clinton, you know, has been uh, promoting these wars that have killed a million black and brown people in, uh, in Iraq, for example. Um, the Democratic Party uh, has become the party of deportation and detentions and night raids with, you know, millions of people deported under Barack Obama. Some of them include the refugees from uh, Honduras, where Hillary Clinton gave the thumbs up to a coup from which thousands of people have been fleeing uh, who have not been welcomed into this country. And Hillary, in fact, has supported many of the White House policies of deportation and detentions. Um, On, you know, the issue of uh, nuclear war, I am very concerned about trouble breaking out in Syria in this air war that Hillary is threatening to have. So, you know, as disturbing as Donald Trump's talk is, I find Hillary Clinton's track record is actually very much of concern, too. This politics of fear that tells you you've got to vote against the person you most dislike or the person you are most afraid of, that politics of fear has a track record, because a lot of people have been, you know, that's been like the prevailing uh, mythology, you got to vote your fears, not your values. And what has that delivered? You know, all the reasons you're told to vote for the lesser evil, because you didn't want the expanding wars, you didn't want the meltdown of the climate or the Wall Street bailouts or the deportation of immigrants. That's exactly what we've gotten by allowing ourselves to be silenced, so in my view, Uh, We need to reject the lesser evil and fight for the greater good.
0: Okay, this question is beyond obnoxious at this point, because when people say, you have no chance, you're effectively helping Trump get elected, they act as though they're being super pragmatic and they have this inside knowledge that we don't have. This is what you're arguing for. You're literally arguing that you don't want there to be any political opposition. Look at the polls. Right now, Hillary Clinton is dominating in every single poll against Donald Trump. So are you really afraid that Jill Stein is going to spoil the election for Hillary Clinton or do you just want total and complete domination of the Democratic Party? You're asking there to not be any political opposition. Do you know how bad that is in a democracy? The Green Party, regardless if you think they can or can't win, which it's very difficult in our political climate, but they're a check On Democratic tyranny. Without the Green Party, they could keep moving further and further to the right and so long as they're just a little bit less shitty than Republicans, people are going to be or feel that they're forced to vote for them. That's not acceptable at all. So the bigger the vote share that the Green Party takes from the Democrats, the more it gets them to pay attention, turn around, and move back to the left. So don't act as though Jill Stein and her presence in this election cycle is bad or detrimental to democracy. No, this is democracy. Political opposition is what democracy is about. And if you don't like that, go live in a single-party dominant regime like Algeria. And also, I'm sorry, but you don't get to make Jill Stein a scapegoat if Hillary's shitty campaign ultimately fails. And you keep pretending that Ralph Nader single-handedly costs Al Gore the election in two. However, Al Gore won the vote in Florida, but by blocking a recount, the Supreme Court decided that presidency, not Ralph Nader. And furthermore, most people that voted for Ralph Nader were independents and registered Green Party members. Did some Democrats cross party lines and vote for Nader? Yes, but you don't blame Ralph Nader for that. You blame Al Gore for running a terrible campaign and picking Joe Lieberman As his running mate. And furthermore, rather than blame the few thousand Democrats that voted for Ralph Nader, there were hundreds of thousands of Democrats across the country that actually voted Republican. Are they not culpable as well? And then, of course, there's the argument there's no way she could win. Again, it's not about winning, it's about the threat that she poses to the Democratic Party and how that has an influence on their behavior. You need political opposition parties to exist in order to keep the bigger parties in check, even if they don't have a chance of winning. And another problem I have is that this question is always and only posed to Jill Stein and her supporters. Who's asking Gary Johnson how he's going to sleep at night if he hands the election to Donald Trump? Because there is a significant amount of Bernie Sanders supporters that went over to Gary Johnson. Jill Stein gets about 11% of Bernie's supporters, according to one poll, but Gary Johnson gets 10%. So, are we going to ask Gary Johnson why he wants to hand the presidency to Trump? Or are we only going to focus on Jill Stein because her progressive ideas actually challenge Hillary Clinton? It's frustrating to me, and I can't stand it. So, obviously, I was irritated with that question. Now, getting to Ajamu Baraka— um, I think he was great on foreign policy. He shined when it came to Black Lives Matter and institutional racism. And I like the way that he characterized police brutality as a war on black people because it's true. It's been going on for years and years. It's been going on for decades. So we can't pretend that it's a new phenomenon just because the media decided to cover it over the last couple of years. This is something that's been happening forever. And it is, in fact, a war on black people. White people don't have to worry when they walk down the street. I've never been worried about getting arrested or racially profiled when I'm driving in my car. Black people have to worry about that, so I'm glad that he characterized that as such. Now, I previously said that I didn't think Ajamo was the best choice as Jill Stein's VP pick for a number of reasons, and I thought that my worries about him would be cleared up after I watched this town hall, and I thought, okay, you know, I'm going to warm up to him. It's going to make sense why she chose him unfortunately, I still don't see it. I don't think he's a great choice for her. Um, I don't dislike him, but just given the context of what he said about Bernie Sanders and how Jill Stein needs Bernie Sanders supporters, I still, it's not clear to me. I don't think he's the best choice for her. I mean, when it comes to him calling Obama an Uncle Tom, it just wasn't a good look, and his answer, I thought, came off as overly politician-y. So, I mean, if he was just honest and said, look, I called him an Uncle Tom in the heat of the moment when I was feeling angered and disenchanted with his neoliberal economic policies and neoconservative war policies. I mean, it's a human emotion. I think that that would have played better if he was just honest. And, you know, getting to his criticism of Bernie Sanders, he claimed that you can't disconnect foreign policy from domestic policy if you are trying to be a true progressive. Uh, And he said that Bernie Sanders should have been more progressive on Saudi Arabia. Specifically, he took issue with the statement that Bernie said about how they've got to get their hands dirty when it comes to the war on terror. Bernie wasn't saying that they need to go and kill more civilians. In fact, he did call out Saudi Arabia, but what he was saying is that they have to get their hands dirty when it comes to fighting ISIS so we don't have to do it. So he's not condoning their war crimes. Now with that being said, am I 100% in agreement with all of Bernie Sanders' foreign policy positions? No, I'm not. But I think that either Ajamu Baraka mischaracterized Bernie Sanders' position or he was just being intentionally misleading so he can kind of save face. And I don't think it came off very well, honestly. Overall, um, even if it's the case that I'm not enthusiastic about Ajamu Baraka as, you know, a, a running mate, I still do like him as a person. I think that his articles and, you know, his thoughts on foreign policy and American politics, is very, very interesting. But I think just in terms of him being a running mate, you know, I don't see why she chose him. But at the same time, when I hear Jill Stein speak... I think that she could honestly pick Jeb Bush and I'd still vote for her. I'd still enthusiastically cast my vote for her just because she's such a strong candidate herself. Well, maybe not Jeb Bush. <laughs> Let me backtrack a little bit. But I'm just saying that Jill Stein is such a strong candidate that I don't I don't really think that it matters who her running mate is. Now, when you look at Gary Johnson, for example, I think his running mate is so strong that he actually outshines Gary Johnson, uh, and he did in their CNN town hall, but that's not the case in uh, the Green Party Town Hall, I think Jill Stein was a star, as she rightfully should be since she is at the head of the ticket. And look, she's phenomenal. So I really, really hope to see more of these. Kudos to CNN for actually doing it and giving press coverage to the Green Party. And in fact, Green Party enthusiasm spiked all over the internet. I mean, you look at social media, you look at Google searches for Jill Stein, and it it just jumped. So this was great. It was a great opportunity for Jill Stein to get out her ideas about canceling student debt and her foreign policy ideas that are just common sense. So loved it, loved everything about it. Jill Stein is a fantastic candidate, and after watching this overall, my enthusiasm went up for Jill Stein even more, which I didn't think was possible. So, look, she's great. She's a phenomenal candidate. Green Party presidential candidate Jill Stein recently appeared on BBC News, and in this interview that she had, you know, she was polite as usual. She articulated her policy positions well, but the BBC host, much like the other hosts of uh, news outlets was incredibly rude to her, even though she was very nice to him. He was smug, and it was very apparent that he did any and everything he could to vilify her and try to make her look bad, but thankfully, he fell flat on his
2: face. Take a look. On fracking, you oppose fracking, and yet there are said to be between 2 million and 2.7 million American jobs linked to fracking. Does that make sense, to be opposed?
4: That's why we are proposing a Green New Deal like the New Deal that got us out of the Great Depression. We will create 20 million jobs on an emergency basis to create the jobs in clean renewable energy, in a healthy and sustainable food system and in public transportation. So absolutely, we are guaranteeing that displaced workers will have an equivalent job which actually is healthy for them instead of putting their lives at risk when they walk in the door of that fossil fuel job in that refinery or on that fracking site they're going to have a healthy job which is actually good for them their communities their children so good, and their future
2: good for them to make them unemployed first before employing them somewhere else you want free college tuition a cancellation of student debt Medicare no that's for, why
4: we're calling for a Green New Deal sure
2: free college tuition no, cancellation we're not, we're
4: not of student debt Medicare
2: for all th- the cost of that a number
4: uh, yes in fact the Green New Deal pays for itself in health benefits alone. Uh, uh, Free public higher education we know from the G.I. bill returns $7 to the public coffers for every dollar that is put in. So if you do this right, and you cut back on the bloated and dangerous military. We have more than enough money to pay for what we actually need in order to survive. You we talk can about have an America and a world that works for all of us.
2: You talk about a bloated military, which brings me to my next question. You're talking about cutting military spending by 50 percent. You're talking about ending combat operations against ISIS. Are you really suggesting that in a world that's probably uh, as dangerous as it's been for uh, as long as people can remember?
4: Well, we have a 15-year track record now for this policy of bombing and shooting uh, against terrorism. And what it does is create worse terrorist threats. ISIS came out of the catastrophe of both Libya and Iraq. So let's actually look at the track record. What we need to do, in fact, is to impose a weapons embargo on the area. Uh, and the U.S. can lead the way because we are supplying the majority of arms to all sides, in fact. We need to absolutely put a wet blanket on the Middle East instead of applying a flamethrower which is what we have been doing we need a weapons embargo and we need to put a freeze on the bank accounts of those countries that are continuing to fund terrorist enterprises according to Hillary Clinton and a leaked State Department memo that's particularly Saudi Arabia
2: you have no experience that's another of the major criticisms how do you address that
4: actually I have lots of the right kind of experience I have experience working with the social movements with grassroots groups in order to change legislation and regulation Uh, everything from cleaning up our coal plants here in Massachusetts to shutting down polluting incinerators to changing laws and regulations that uh, impact our health so what I don't have Is the experience taking money in a corrupt system through the back doors and doing favors for Wall Street and the health insurance companies? But I have exactly the kind of experience that we need in order to move forward with a transformative agenda for people, planet, and peace over profit.
2: You've been scathing about the other two uh, main candidates. I mean, you call Hillary Clinton a a warmonger. You call Trump a bigot. But how do you plan to to combat them over the coming months, given that uh, you're? getting no primetime airtime there in America?
4: And that is exactly the question. There's a big campaign now to open up the debates, to actually make the debates a, uh, an institution that serves the American public. Right now the debates are controlled by, guess who? The Democratic and Republican parties. There are rules, you know, they, they talk about 15% the commission and you're nowhere a near 15%. Well, there's a movement actually to challenge that 15% as a uh, strategy whereby the political establishment silence opposition. We call that tyranny in other countries. If people have a a choice on the ballot that could numerically win the race. And we're on the ballot already for about 65 or 70 percent of voters, and we intend to be on the ballot for about 95 percent. Both my campaign and the libertarians are on the ballot as a real choice. The American people not only have a right to vote, we also have a right to know who we can vote for and the debates should serve that public interest cause for real democracy. Okay,
2: let let me ask you a a more general question, a more human question because uh, there you are running to be the next president of the United States. Give me an idea of what that is like, just the level of scrutiny, even the 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 physical exertion of it.
4: It's, uh, you know, it's a 22 hour a day job Um, it's in my view it's it's a wonderful opportunity you know I'm a medical doctor and I came to see that if we're gonna fix the things that are literally killing us you know we have to address our sick political system above all and I began this process really about 15 years ago when I was uh, recruited to start running for office by the Green Party which lo and behold I didn't know anything about it was actually a party that was advancing the same agenda that I was for or you know for people for an environment for jobs uh for an economy that works for all of us so you know since i've begun this um you know to me it's a really wonderful exciting and very healing process by which we get to have a real conversation through the green party because we're not funded you know by yeah, the we, we, by you've, the you've b- made that usual point you, you know, you've predators. made that point
2: several times I, I mean this campaign i said it in the introduction it, it's been the ugliest the nastiest the most divisive that Many people can remember. How uncomfortable is America in 2016, do you think?
4: Um, Extremely. I think America is rather desperate right now, and they're desperate for something different than what has been throwing them under the bus. Uh, Believe me, as an advocate for public health, for uh, cleaning up our air and our water, you know, these fights are not new to me. They are vicious. The fights that are sponsored by the industries that are trying to save their neck, uh, they, you know, they fight in a very underhanded way. So I'm completely accustomed uh, to the kind of vicious attacks that are being launched against me. this is what it means to stand up and fight against a truly corrupt political system. But you keep talking. Uh, but in my view, you, you keep, talking, election, about, you, excuse you keep me. talking about you uh, keep talking
2: about in a sense being an outsider, you want to be the most powerful politician on earth and you're selling yourself as not being well, a politician. Does that make any sort of sense?
4: Well, you know, let me just say, in this election, the American people are the outsiders. And it's the American people who are getting screwed. In this election, we're not just deciding what kind of a world we're going to have, but whether we're going to have a world or not going forward. Not just on climate change, but on the new nuclear arms race. And Hillary Clinton wants to start an air war over Syria, declaring a no-fly zone against another nuclear armed power, Russia. Uh, or you look at the massive and expanding wars. and, and this this has really come home to roost now for the American people okay. who are really struggling. One out of every two Americans okay. now is in poverty or low income. So it's a we- very personal struggle, not just for me. I have it easy sure. compared to what most American people are fighting.
2: We are very nearly out of time. A final question, a final thought, because just about everybody agrees on one thing. This election represents probably the biggest gen- uh, choice that anyone. Can remember for generations in terms of the direction of travel for america how america is governed isn't the truth of things that the greens are simply a distraction from that fundamental choice that people have to make in november
4: well you know i think the american people have something to say about that if you look at what the american people are saying they're saying no thank you to what the political establishment and the corporate media says Oh, you be good little boys and girls. You have two choices, the guys that have created this absolute mess. The American people have had it with the rigged economy and the rigged political system. They are breaking out. If we don't offer them a progressive choice, we know where they're going, and that is to right-wing extremism. So it's very important. In order to combat right-wing extremism, we need to stand up for the right thing.
0: So he criticized her for wanting to ban fracking. He said, good for them to make them unemployed before employing them somewhere else what? Did you even listen to what she said? What you just said about her is factually inaccurate. She's not just going to displace all of these workers. She is creating a Green New Deal so that way they have more environmentally friendly jobs that they can gravitate to once we do ban fracking. And his response was, sure. You have nothing else to say when she responds in a manner that's polite and actually completely corrects you and makes you look like a fool. That was really frustrating. And think about this. He's literally trying to attack her because she wants to ban fracking, a practice that destroys the environment and poisons our drinking water. See, I bet that if this host had a company fracking in his backyard and poisoning his drinking water and causing earthquakes where he lives he'd have a completely different stance on fracking. But, you know, out of sight, out of mind. If it doesn't affect me, then I could speak about it in a way that's condescending and I don't have to care about other people. And furthermore, I want to play devil's advocate here. Let's say that Joel Stein was just going to ban fracking and not worry about the workers that would be displaced as a result of that. Should she still ban fracking? Yes, I think she should. Would that undoubtedly increase the unemployment rate and have deleterious economic consequences? Yeah, it would. But here's the thing, do you want to know what would make the unemployment rate skyrocket to 100% if we don't have a habitable planet to work on to begin with? You see, because in order for an economy to survive altogether, it has to be sustained on a planet. And the problem is that according to the World Value Survey, Americans believe that economic growth should take priority over protecting the environment. Not okay at all. And look, I get wanting to protect the economy. I don't want more poverty. I don't want people to be unemployed. And look, I'm not championing the idea that we should have these economic depressions as a result of dramatically changing the economy and, you know, banning fracking and whatnot. I think that Jill's approach is absolutely logical. She's saying we're going to transition the workers that are in these environmentally unfriendly careers into a green career where their job isn't going to harm the environment. And I'm in favor of that. But I think logically, it it, it doesn't even make sense to say that the economy is more important than the environment. An economy cannot exist without an environment. If we don't have a planet, we don't have an economy. We don't have anything. We're all dead. It's nonsensical to me. Yet, a majority of Americans believe that. Now, of course, he also asked her about the cost of all of the programs. And I'm guessing that he wouldn't worry about the cost of War, though. Because we only worry about the cost if we're actually helping citizens. But if we're killing brown people in the Middle East, you know, we'll put it on the credit card. It's fine then. (sighs) It's so frustrating. He's going to all the right-wing tactics that we see in the United States, and you'd think that, you know, on BBC we'd get a different standard, but not at all. And he also asked her about military spending and how we can cut it in half when the world is so dangerous, and she explained it to him really well, but, you know, whenever she started to make too much sense, he had to cut her off because, you know, he doesn't want any of her talking points to resonate with viewers. So, if someone is making sense, cut them off, because it's not about actually allowing Jill Stein a platform to talk about her policies, it's trying to make her look bad and vilify her. That was the whole point of this interview. Now, he also got irritated because she kept bringing up the fact that they're not funded by corporations, and he said, yeah, you've made that point several times. Right. And she should make it several more times because we're not even electing politicians anymore in America. We're electing a puppet. So for someone to come along and declare that there's no conflict of interest between their donors and their policy positions, that is huge. It can't be overstated. It's impossible. So for her to bring that up, She's doing a good thing. She needs to hammer that point home. Bernie Sanders did it, and she's correctly doing it. That's the strategy you need. See, rather than applauding her for that, though, this host just decided to dismiss her and imply that she's crazy because she wants to repeat herself. You're a crazy person. Look at this crazy person. She's repeating herself. Unbelievable. Now, he said, you're selling yourself as an outsider but campaigning to be the most powerful politician on Earth. Does that make any sort of sense? (sighs) See, nobody understands what a political outsider and a political insider is. Nobody can distinguish the difference between establishment and anti-establishment. The problem is that if you're going to be smug, you have to actually be knowledgeable, dude. Jill Stein won't automatically become an insider as president. She's an outsider because she's not a part of the corrupt political establishment where she takes bribes, does favors for her donors, and then gets out of office and then goes and becomes a lobbyist for the people that she worked for, who she did the bidding for in Congress. But overall, here's what I love about Jill Stein. She handled her own there, and she had the perfect response to any and every bullshit he tried to throw at her. See, anytime someone uh, gets cut off because they're making sense, that's when you know there's an ulterior agenda behind what he's doing. See, he called her a distraction, but this distraction made him look like a fool on his own show. So it's not so much that Jill Stein is a distraction. It's that uh, she might take votes away from the dominant political establishment, which is driving us into poverty, which is spawning wars across the globe that are illegal and unethical. And she's actually speaking out against it, but you don't want to hear what she has to say because you cut her off each time. But here's the thing. If you have to cut her off, you help Jill Stein because you show that you're afraid that what she's saying might actually resonate with viewers. It might actually resonate with the people who will be deciding this election. So they're going to do everything they can to try to vilify Jill Stein, but you can't do it because she's smooth, she knows what to say, she's articulate, and she could break down any bullshit argument you try to give her. So keep it up because it's only helping Jill Stein. So, I previously covered a segment where Jill Stein went on Fox News, and it was interesting to watch that dynamic because with how much of a leftist Jill Stein is and how much far to the right Fox News hosts are, it was really interesting to watch their responses to her policy positions, and in the end, I concluded that I think that she made their heads explode. So, she went back on Fox News, and I think she did the same thing. She calmly and articulately Destroyed them. They tried really hard to make her look bad, and it
1: just blew up in their face. Take a look. So we played a clip you from me? you earlier, uh, just a couple of minutes ago, attacking Trump mm-hmm. for being warlike. And it seems to me that if you compare Trump and Hillary, Trump has supported no wars that I'm aware of. Hillary Clinton supported the war in Iraq, the escalation in Afghanistan, war against Syria, and of course she was one of the prime movers behind the killer, the killing of Gaddafi in Libya. On the question of war, aren't you closer to Trump than you are to Hillary?
4: Um, I I think you could say so. I think Hillary has an absolutely catastrophic war record. On the other hand, Trump has talked about his um, secret plans that will obliterate resistance in various areas of the Middle East, which is rather worrisome that he won't tell us how he's going to obliterate the enemy in the Middle East. And he's calling again for the strongest military ever. Right now, that military is eating up 50% of our discretionary budget, almost half of your income tax is going to support the military and these wars that have not made us safer in fact they're making us less safe terrorism only keeps gaining more territory becoming more strong and more vicious okay. so this is a failed policy and unfortunately donald trump doesn't really stand mm-hmm. up to that he calls for more of the same though you're right he doesn't have the track record of these devastating mm-hmm. wars that hillary actually does and
1: Ms. Stern, i want to get your thoughts on julian assange because uh... the the from from Wiki and those tens of thousands of emails that were released by WikiLeaks caused a lot of convention chaos. Uh, Debbie Washington Schultz even booed out of a job almost. He was satellited into the convention and he was deemed a hero. What does that mean?
4: Well, thanks to whistleblowers like Julian Assange, we actually know now about the government spying on us on our phone calls, on our emails. Uh, uh... on our web communications and habits so there are actually violations of our constitutional rights that are going on behind closed doors and now that we've been alerted we've actually started to take steps to correct that so i think it's very important whistleblowers have always played a really critical role for making sure that they keep our government honest and that they are not violating our rights behind closed doors. Well
1: Dr. Stein and thanks
0: to traitors like Edward Snowden we've also lost to agents on the battlefield because we've given up their identity
1: of sources and methods. You talk about n- Donald Trump's non plan for the Middle East. Or he's not, got a secret not plan. Well, hold on. What is a plan? What Sorry. is your peace offensive in the Middle East? Is that, what, uh, is that what's going to defeat ISIS? Just a little bit more peace, maybe some jobs for them? What does a peace offensive
0: do to defeat radical Islamic terrorists in the Middle East?
4: Well, first, let's remember we've spent $6 trillion. That's 75000 trillion. No, I understand, that. I understand what's been American done. What's helpful. your plan? Well, I think it's it's important to be clear that more of a failed policy is not going to work. You cannot bomb terrorism out of existence. You have to starve it. You have to deprive it of weapons, and you have to deprive it of funding. So, unfortunately, our allies, and arguably the CIA itself, have played a role in... Providing arms, training, and funding, so we need to freeze the bank accounts. Hillary Clinton herself, as Secretary of State, well, identified we'll the, Saudis the bank as still the major funder of uh, terrorist enterprises around the world so it 's time to get uh, clear with our allies that they need to help us. Fight terrorism, and that means to stop the funding, the training, and the armaments. Most yeah. of the arms supplied to the Middle East are actually coming from the U.S. and our allies. We just sold 100 billion dollars worth of arms to the Saudis, who can then distribute them wherever they like. So we can shut down this war right. because it's our weapons that have enabled it to be fought.
1: So you mention our allies. Both candidates agree our key ally in the region is Israel. You support a boycott of Israel, and you describe the government this way as responsible for. I'm quoting apartheid, assassination, illegal settlements, blockades, building of nuclear bombs, indefinite detention, collective punishment and defiance of international law. My question to you is do you think Israel is more an outlaw state than say Cuba is? Which is a more legitimate government?
4: Well let me say this our policy applies to all countries. Right. And that is where there are flagrant violations of human rights, war crimes, assassinations, uh, and international law, then we need to stop supporting those countries, to stop funding them. So we're calling for a level playing field here. Hmm. Everything we say about Israel also applies to our ally Saudi Arabia, for example, or to Egypt. In the case of Israel, we are providing 8 million dollars a day for an army, which is an army of occupation, which is in defiance of international law. So this isn't something that question, just uh, I am making up. This is, the, is this, this is the actual statements of the United Nations and international law. Are you Nations making a moral equivalence law. between
0: Israel and Cuba, where, where there are gulags and jailing of dissidents? I mean, are you making that, are you making that moral equation?
4: Well, we're not funding uh, Cuba to the tune of eight million dollars a day, and that's what our policy says: is well, that we need to stop funding and supporting those governments that are in violation of international law. Yeah, there's lots of human rights violations going on in Cuba, in the United States, uh, everywhere around well, the so world. So a lot of but Democrats are mad. What our policy at you. says is that we stop actually no, I, I, funding I those countries. A lot
1: of Democrats are yeah. mad at you because they look at you at the, as the Ralph Nader of this election. If you pull three points, two points. and a half from Hillary Clinton, you could throw this race to Donald Trump. That's the argument they make. How do you respond to that?
4: Well first, politicians don't have a new form of entitlement, uh, an entitlement to our votes. They have to earn our votes. Right now, Uh, Voters are not happy with either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. In fact, they are the most disliked and untrusted candidates ever. A poll today just showed both of them are distrusted by the American public uh, overwhelmingly. And at the same time, the public is clamoring for more voices and more choices. That's what democracy is supposed to be about. And that's what my campaign provides in this election.
0: So the first issue that I took with that is uh, the host said Trump supported no wars that I'm aware of. That's not true. Take a look.
1: Are you for invading Iraq? Yeah, I guess so. Uh, You know, I wish it was, I, I wish the first time it was done correctly. Gaddafi in Libya is killing thousands of people. We should go in, we should stop this guy, which would be very easy and very quick. Stop him from doing it and save these lives
0: also he supports a syrian no-fly zone which means that you try to ban russia from flying over a certain area in syria and if they do fly over that area you shoot down their planes which could escalate to a new cold war or potentially world war three trump supports this Clinton supports this. Also, he pledged to ramp up the fight against ISIS and said he would consider using nuclear weapons against them. So Donald Trump, he does support wars. We don't have a record to look at with Donald Trump, as is the case with Hillary Clinton, but we have his words to go by. He's saying he's going to start wars and uh, commit war crimes. Uh, yeah he he is in support of wars so i reject the premise of that question altogether but the point being was that jill stein was the only anti-war candidate besides gary johnson now there was also the host that was just incredibly douchey to her he said how is your quote peace defensive going to defeat isis are you gonna give them jobs and that's gonna stop them from killing everyone or something of that nature uh and her response was so good He just had nothing but a dumb look on his face. And he should. He should feel bad about asking such a stupid question. Because to ask something like that, it shows that you're really ignorant. You don't know anything about foreign policy. You don't know about our actions in foreign countries. You don't know what we've done to create more terrorism. The war on terror has been a failure and this guy, you know, he, he just accepts the idea of American exceptionalism. He thinks that our imperialistic foreign policy is somehow not only a good thing, but it's welcomed by the rest of the world. That's not the case. Jill Stein knows what's going on, and I think she really shined here. They also said, are you trying to make a moral equivalence between Israel and Cuba? And her response, I mean, brilliant. She said, we're not funding uh, Cuba to the tune of $8 million a day. That's what it comes down to because we are culpable in things that our tax dollars fund. So when Obama launches these drone initiatives now in Libya, if that kills civilians, I feel guilty. I feel as though there's blood on my hands because my tax dollars that I'm paying Is helping to fund that if there were no tax dollars available the government would not be able to drop bombs in middle eastern countries so i feel as though i'm guilty somehow but when we're not funding things like cuba is it bad that there are these human rights violations in cuba absolutely and i hope that they can open up their regime but we're not funding that so i don't feel guilty for whatever happens in cuba i do feel guilty for whatever happens in israel Because if they commit war crimes, like their 2014 incursion into Gaza, which killed 80-90% to of civilians, well then I feel like I'm responsible for that because my tax dollars help to fund that. We give Israel $8 million a day and billions of dollars each year. I'm helping with that and I feel guilty about that and that's why I want to support Jill Stein because I want to support the candidate that's not going to take my tax dollars and kill people with it. She's going to take my tax dollars and save lives by helping to create a healthcare system that is going to actually stop people from dying because they can't get medical insurance. That's going to prevent wars. That's going to literally save the planet with her Green New Deal. So, I'm sorry, but Jill Stein absolutely demolished them. She made them not just look stupid, but I think she made them look like shit, especially the guy who tried to get her and vilify her and try to make her policy seem stupid. Jill Stein has a way of articulating her policy positions in a manner that's not just calm, but she explains it in a way that I think a five-year-old can understand it, even the idiots of Fox News. And she also makes them look stupid by showing just how much knowledge she has It's brilliant, I absolutely cannot stress how much I love Jill Stein, she's phenomenal. So I previously told you guys about a class action lawsuit being filed against the DNC by more than 100 Bernie Sanders supporters, and it's being taken up by a law firm called Beck and Lee. So they claim that Bernie Sanders supporters were defrauded by donating to a process that was inherently unfair and biased against their candidate. Now they are accusing the DNC of fraud, negligent misrepresentation, deceptive conduct, and are claiming monetary restitution- for people that donated to Bernie and they're also alleging the DNC broke its own fiduciary duties and is guilty of negligence for failing to protect sensitive donor information that was hacked. Now this is all based off of the evidence from the Guccifer 2.0 leaks and the WikiLeaks release of 20,000 DNC emails. Now personally I'm not 100% sure whether or not this can actually be admitted into the court of law as evidence. So if anyone has an answer to that, I know it's going to be, you know, specific by the state, but if you have some light to shed, please comment down below about that. But overall the reason why I'm bringing this up is because there is an update. The case is, in fact, moving forward. So, Beck and Lee noted the lawsuit was a way to give a voice to Sanders supporters who were silenced by the rigging of the primaries for Clinton. Attorneys Jared Beck, a Harvard Law graduate, and Elizabeth Beck, a Yale Law School graduate, have previously filed successful lawsuits against Yelp, Unilever, Korea Airlines, and fraudulent real estate investors. Now, what happened was when the DNC and Debbie Wasserman Schultz was served with this lawsuit, Well, she had moved to ask the court to dismiss this lawsuit, but they rejected that request. Now, additionally, on August 23rd, an evidentiary hearing will be held in South Florida and both parties involved in the suit will have to present evidence to support their positions. The hearing was issued by the presiding judge in response to the DNC and Wasserman Schultz's motion to dismiss the lawsuit and a separate motion to buy themselves more time until September 9th. Insufficient service of process was cited. Alleging process server Sean Lucas failed to properly serve the DNC. Lucas was filmed serving the lawsuit to the DNC headquarters in July, but was unable to provide testimony to combat the testimony of DNC staff member Rebecca Harris. Lucas was found dead on August 2nd in his apartment. A cause of death has not yet been determined. So there's a lot that's gone on since this class action lawsuit has been filed. Now, when it comes to Sean Lucas's death, horrible. Really horrible. And the circumstances surrounding his death are... You know, they're a little bit suspicious, but I'm not going to imply anything that the DNC is somehow culpable on that. You know, if we have evidence, then sure. But with that and the Seth Rich death and whatnot, I don't want to unnecessarily fuel a conspiracy theory without any evidence if, you know, if it untrue, just because I don't think that it's worth it to politicize his death when we don't have all the details. So I won't comment on that portion, but I will say that the DNC is definitely pushing back. Against this lawsuit, pretty hard, and they're gonna fight it and they're trying to extend it and uh, push it back so that way, if they keep pushing it back and pushing it back, you know, maybe it'll go away and people will not care. Maybe it'll be dismissed after the election, but uh, we have to follow through with it. We have to show the DNC that they are not allowed to defraud us and then get away with it. And look, even if it's the case that the Gutrefer 2.0 and WikiLeaks evidence isn't gonna be admitted as actual evidence, we have instances of them showing their bias against Bernie Sanders and why they wanted to sabotage him. We have the testimonies from individuals like Nico House who claimed that there were insiders from Hillary's campaign and the DNC trying to sabotage Bernie Sanders and were claiming to work for him. So, I mean, we have these testimonies. We have evidence of Debbie Wasserman Schultz literally admitting on CBS, a local station in Florida, that they did everything they can to prepare and work to make hillary clinton the nominee so we do have the evidence it wouldn't be as strong as actually them explicitly saying they're trying to destroy bernie sanders campaign as is the case with these wikileaks uh, releases but the evidence is it's overwhelming to me now whether or not you can convince a judge or a jury of that is another story so look This is an important lawsuit. It has to go through. uh, And hopefully, you know, Bernie Sanders supporters can actually get something out of this since they were very much, in fact, defrauded by donating money to a candidate that never had a chance because the DNC was working against him. It's unfair. It's unfair. I'm not going to say that Hillary Clinton stole the election because I think that's a little bit too hyperbolic, but it certainly was rigged. She certainly cheated. And the DNC certainly cheated to help her campaign. So, uh, you know, I can't approve of that. We're owed money. We are owed financial compensation and I think that it's only moral that we get that. I recently told you guys about a Bernie-backed Democrat named Zephyr Teachout who is running for Congress to represent the 19th district of New York. Well, she recently won her primary and is going to face off against her Republican opponent, John Faso in November. Now, to give you some context, she's been an outspoken advocate of public finance elections for a very long time, and she's not just talking the talk. Like Bernie Sanders, she doesn't have a super PAC and all of her campaign funding comes in the form of small grassroots donations. In fact, her average campaign contribution is $15, even smaller than Bernie Sanders. So you know that if this candidate is not willing to take corporate money, she's not going to be beholden to corporate interests and will represent you. So I want her to get elected. So we definitely care about Zephyr Teachout's campaign because anyone who can fund their campaign exclusively through grassroots donations... That's someone who you want to get in office because you want them to set an example for all these corporatist Democrats and corporatist Republicans who think that they can't win unless they take large sums of money from rich billionaire donors. So by doing this and by actually winning, well, it destroys that myth because they always say we can't show up to a gunfight with a knife. Obama said this, I think. But you can, you see, because Democrats now, Berniecrats, are winning and they're not taking corporate money. So why can't you? So I think this is phenomenal. We have to get these candidates in office. So you think that, like all candidates, they are itching to debate their corporate billionaire funded opponent, right? Not really, actually. So she has a different approach. Knowing that the donors are the ones that control the candidates, she figured, why go to the puppet when you can have the puppet master? So here's what she's doing. She's not challenging her opponent John Faso to a debate. She's challenging his billionaire donor to debate, Paul Singer. (laughs) Take a look.
3: So I want to talk to you about someone you've never heard of before because he has decided to spend half a million dollars on a super PAC supporting my opponent John Faso. This is Paul Singer. He's a billionaire, he's a hedge funder. He seems to be a big privatizer basically, no rules. Offshore everything. Trans-Pacific Partnership, NAFTA, there's no free trade deal he's ever seen that he doesn't like. This is one of the things that is so important about understanding what's happening with super PACs, is these are people, and you know, mostly men, who are basically just picking and choosing areas and buying people who are gonna represent them. I bet $500,000 isn't even a lot of money to him. Um, It's everything in a political campaign. My average donor gives about $15. And that's important to me because it means that I can listen to the concerns of the people of the 19th district. So this is very serious. Paul Singer, I challenge you to come here and have a debate with me. I want to hear why you want to offshore jobs. Let's debate Common Core. I want to hear why you think high-stakes testing is good for our schools. Let's debate fracking. I want to hear what you think about the Constitution pipeline, and what you think about how we should deal with the real challenges around uh, flooding that are coming from climate change. I'm ready, and I think the people of the 19th district deserve to hear your actual voice when you're putting so much money into trying to buy up representation.
0: So if you didn't love Zephyr Teachout before, there you have it. You just fell in love with her. You're welcome. <laughs> She's phenomenal. She is phenomenal. She is a Jill Stein slash Bernie Sanders Democrat running for office, and she has a very good chance of winning. Now, according to The Hill, Singer is the manager of Elliott Management Corp. and is estimated to be worth over 2 billion dollars both singer and another hedge fund manager robert mercer have donated hundreds of thousands of dollars to new york wins pack which is supporting Fazo. Teachout invited mercer to a debate as well so this is what you do if you want to make your opponent look like an ass You challenge their donors to a debate because it's embarrassing, right? She's going straight to the source because she knows that they're going to be the ones that actually dictate policy. So why even bother with John Fazo? He's just a conduit for corporate billionaire corruption. So this is what you have to do across the country. Every single uh, Bernie crat, Tim Canova, Misty Snow, I want them to challenge the donors of their opponent because not only will this get you a lot of press coverage, but It'll make your opponent look like shit. This is brilliant. This is how you play politics right here. Kudos to Zephyr Teachout. I hope she wins. Hillary and Bill Clinton finally seem cognizant of the fact that Americans are on to their sleazy, corrupt Clinton foundation. We're really afraid of the fact that you have this foreign influence who then donates to your foundation and then influences your decisions as a public office holder. It's it's incredibly frightening. But finally, they seem as though they're taking into account that criticism and why we have legitimate concerns about the Clinton Foundation. So they're going to make some changes. So the Clinton Foundation will no longer accept corporate and foreign donations if Hillary Clinton becomes president, according to the Associated Press. Former President Bill Clinton announced the plan to staffers on Thursday, the AP said, citing anonymous participants at the meeting. A formal announcement is expected soon. Under the proposed changes, the family's Charitable Group would only accept donations from U.S. citizens and independent charities. Bill Clinton said the foundation will continue its work and would refocus its efforts after an overhaul that could take a year. He added that the Clinton Global Initiative, an annual summit that brings together influential world leaders, would hold its final meeting next month in New York City regardless of the election's outcome. So to reiterate here what's happening, They are not going to be bribed by foreign donors now. Just American donors are going to be able to bribe them. And furthermore, this is going to take a year to implement that change. Really? You're pretending like you're a bureaucracy or some big corporation when you just have two people at the top who are controlling everything. So really, I don't believe this is going to take a year. It's going to take a year... Because you want to make sure you get in all those donations that you can, so that way you have enough favors to give to all these donors for the next four, potentially eight years. So my question now is, are we supposed to applaud them for this? Because, you know, I can give them credit where credit is due, but my question is, why didn't they do this from the get-go? You see the optics, even if they weren't corrupt. If I was running for office and I had a foundation... I would think you know what i'm gonna have to distance myself from this because i know that this kind of gives off a bad image i don't want people to think i'm corrupt and beholden to the donors of this foundation and i don't want there to even uh, appear as though there's a conflict of interest they didn't do that they thought they're going to continue to have this foundation while she's running for president and take foreign donations for it so why didn't you do this sooner And do you think that now, once you've collected millions of dollars in foreign donations when the election is about three months away, we're supposed to think, oh, well, the influence will go away? Well, of course not, because what you're going to do is you're going to collect all these donations, and then later on, they're going to call you up, and of course, you're going to answer the phone, and what's going to happen? You're going to come through for them like you promised you would, most likely. So I don't really applaud them for this. This is something you should have done a long time ago. This is something that you should have done from the beginning. And I love how we're supposed to be grateful for this. Oh, okay, we're not going to be influenced by uh, foreign donations to our corrupt charitable organization. Well, that should just be a given. I don't want any president to be influenced by money while they're in office. Is that not something that we just get automatically in a democracy? I don't get why we're supposed to applaud them for this all of a sudden. They just don't get it. They don't get it. They don't get why we're afraid that large donations of tens of millions of dollars might influence their opinion. Now look, even though it's the case that Hillary Clinton may seem robotic at times, she's a human being. Even if she is poll-driven and focus group-driven, she's a human. At the end of the day, this money will influence you. And look, there's a reason why, when it comes to super PACs, you can coordinate with them up until the point that you announce your candidacy, because it's supposed to be a fail-safe against corruption, But they still coordinate, but the logic behind it, however, and the existence of such laws, nonetheless, is supposed to prevent corruption. And this applies to the Clintons as well, but as we've seen with them, they operate as though they're above the law, and it's incredibly frustrating. This should have stopped immediately once you announced you were going to run for president. Pretend the Clinton Foundation is a super PAC, because it kind of is in some ways, and stop taking all foreign donations the second you announce that you're running for president? Why is it that now, over a year into your campaign, you're now saying that, well, in about a year from now, I'm going to stop taking foreign donations? Why? Why is it going to take so long? Why did it take so long for you to make this announcement? It's just so frustrating. This is one of my problems with Hillary Clinton. They don't think about the perception that they give off to voters. They don't think about how this looks. And the problem is that we actually have evidence of quid pro quos and pay-to-play deals between the Clinton Foundation and their foreign donors. Why is it that after donating $10 million to your foundation, Saudi Arabia got a weapons deal? See, you would think that this is antithetical to Hillary Clinton's position because she's voiced concerns about the repressive tactics of Saudi Arabia, but yet... They donated it to you, so you know what? Uh, who cares? They don't get it. They just don't get it, and they never will. With the news that health insurance provider Aetna would be bowing out of the public exchanges of the Affordable Care Act because they're throwing a tantrum, since the Department of Justice won't allow them to monopolize the market and approve their merger with Humana, we're seeing how obviously flawed Obamacare really is. So this of course led to renewed calls for a public option, and the individual leading the charge, unsurprisingly is Bernie Sanders. He states, in my view, the provision of healthcare cannot continue to be dependent upon the whims and market projections of large private insurance companies whose only goal is to make as much profit as possible. That is why we need to join every other major country on earth and guarantee healthcare to all as a right. Not a privilege. These companies are more concerned with making huge profits than ensuring access to healthcare for all Americans. Now, the ultimate goal, of course, is to have a single payer healthcare system set up in America where we all just have healthcare based on our taxes. We fund it through our tax dollars, and the insurance companies are completely out of the equation. They're abolished, they're not needed. Because we don't look at healthcare as a profitable industry. We look at it as a right. Everyone has it. We all pay into it. We all fund it with our tax dollars. And there's nobody that can be excluded. That's the goal. But with that being said, a public option would be a huge step in the right direction because private insurance companies would be forced to be less tyrannical since they'd have to compete with a government-run option. So with a public option, you can choose either to buy insurance from a private company or you can go with the governmental form of insurance, hence why it's called a public option. So, Vox explains why this is really important. A public insurance plan for working-age people could compete with private insurers and use its bargaining power to push back against drug makers, medical device manufacturers, hospital systems, and other healthcare providers. A public plan would hold down costs more through insisting on lower prices than through micro-regulations of patients or extremely restrictive networks of providers. So at the end of the day, a single-payer system is just common sense. But if you're not even going to have that, then it's essential that we have a public option. It's not just pragmatic, but it's the ethical thing to do. If you're going to allow these unethical insurance companies to exist, then at least make them compete with a government-run plan so that way they can't get too tyrannical. Now the question is, how are Democrats responding to this renewed effort uh, to get a public option? Well... You're not going to be surprised to know that Senator Sanders' renewed push for a government-run healthcare plan is getting a tepid reception from Democrats, with some saying he is waging a losing battle. On Capitol Hill, Democrats think a fight over a public option is nearly impossible to win, regardless of how the November election shakes out. The public option was a good idea in 2009, and it's still a good idea today, but... I don't know that the politics have changed at all on it, said Senator Chris Murphy. So, in typical spineless Democrat fashion, they're going to back down from a fight before it even begins, and this is in spite of the fact that 77% of Democratic voters, Chris Murphy's base, supports a public option. So, he doesn't even want to try to fight in spite of the fact that they might take back Congress. And their own party wants them to do this. So, quote, Democrats also appear weary of another politically taxing battle over health care. Out of the 11 Democrats running for open or contested seats this year, only Senator Chris Van Hollen is pushing the public option during campaign appearances. This is absolutely pathetic. It's not even like they're trying and then failing. They don't even want to try. They're not even showing up to the fight. And these idiots have the audacity to say, how dare you vote for Jill Stein? How dare you go third party? This is why. And the vote share that the Green Party gets is going to continue to get larger and larger each election cycle unless these idiots wake up. Now, is it the case that Chris Murphy is spineless? absolutely. He doesn't want to fight. He doesn't want to be principled and actually fight for the people who put him in office. But you have to follow the money if you really want to know why these spineless corporatist Democrats don't fight for us. Senator Chris Murphy, who claims the battle would just be too difficult, has taken 342000 from healthcare professionals and 395000 from insurance industries various insurance industries so if you're ever curious as to why these democrats they just they don't want to fight for the policies that their own base wants this is why it's because they're taking money they're bought and paid for by the health insurance industry why is it that hillary clinton proposed one of the best healthcare plans ever in the 90s hillary care and then all of a sudden she started to back away from that she proposed a full-on single-payer healthcare system and then the health insurance industry bought her off. Now, she did pass the child health insurance program, CHIP, but all of a sudden, she's not in favor of a single-payer healthcare system anymore. She says she's in favor of the public option, but we know that's not true because, guess what? She's taking money from these health insurance industries, too. So... You can be bought easily in Congress. It doesn't even take millions of dollars. It takes less than one million dollars, and you can completely buy off a politician. It's pathetic.
3: Health emergencies can't wait for us to have some theoretical debate about some better idea that will never, ever come to pass.
0: Tony Perkins is an individual that presides over the Family Research Council, which is a hate group against gay people, and they're main objective basically is to defame and demonize LGBT people. This isn't necessarily according to me but the Southern Poverty Law Center actually deems them as a hate group. Now also if you forgot this is the group that employed pedophile Josh Duggar of the reality TV show fame because reality stars love Republicans for some reason. Now Tony Perkins, basically what this individual is is he lobbies politicians and gets them to be anti-gay. Tony Perkins previously maintained that natural disasters such as hurricanes and floods are, quote, God's wrath for the legalization of gay marriage. So Pink News explains, speaking on Family Research Council radio, Perkins explained that he and his family were forced to escape their flooded home In a canoe. This is a flood, I would have to say, of near biblical proportions, the homophobic lobbyists announced. Perkins said that he and his family were now living off of God's provisions in their mobile home where they will spend the next six months. So, this is my question. If God is real, which he's not, isn't he outing Tony Perkins for homosexuality? Because the irony here is it's pretty extreme, right? If it's the case, according to Tony Perkins' belief, That God punishes people for homosexuality with natural disasters such as hurricanes and floods, and he was punished with a flood, lost his home, had to uh, flee his house in a canoe. Doesn't that make him a homosexual? Isn't God outing you? Well, of course not, because Tony Perkins pointed out that this flood in particular actually wasn't because of the gay people. (laughs) Well, of course it isn't, of course, because it happened to you, and you're clearly a heterosexual male, right? Even though you've dedicated your life to fighting against gay rights and trying to defame and vilify gay people. Not because, you know, uh, you're really hiding the fact that you're gay and you're trying to prove it to people that you're not. You're this big straight male, right? No, of course not. This isn't because of the gay people. Now, here's the thing that I want to emphasize. All the flooding that's going on right now in southern Louisiana is terrible. So far, 40,000 people lost their homes and 11 have actually died thus far. It's just incredibly sad. But the irony of his comments raise questions about his religion if natural disasters actually were a punishment for homosexuality wouldn't it be time to find a new god then i mean if the punishment for people loving someone who has the same genitalia is mass murder and displacement of their homes what does that say about you if you support that position of your god i mean even if you think that homosexuality is a sin like tony perkins believes Isn't mass murder a worse sin? I mean, it's literally part of the Ten Commandments. Homosexuality isn't even on the Ten Commandments. So, the fact that murder is on the Ten Commandments and your own God can't even follow his own commandments What does that say about you for following this god? See, I'm not happy that Tony Perkins lost this home. I think that it's sad. I don't think he deserves it, nor do I think his family deserves it. The punishment for homophobia shouldn't be for you to lose your home, even though you think the punishment for homosexuality should be just that. See, the difference is that I'm a human. I actually derive my ethical position and my moral compass from empirical reality and human compassion. You don't. You base it on a book with a God that can't even follow his own goddamn commandments. You can claim to be morally superior while you sit on your high horse and you violate your own Bible by eating shellfish and wearing clothes of mixed linens and by judging, which you're not allowed to do, according to your own Bible. And, you know, it's pretentious. You look down on people. But the fact of the matter is that you're not a good person. You're a bad person. But with that being said, I don't believe that bad things should happen to you just because I disagree with you but you still think that bad things should happen to gay people because you disagree with them. It's unacceptable, and I had to talk about this because the irony is overwhelming. I'm not happy that you lost your home, but don't make comments that God is punishing people for homosexuality with natural disasters because it could come back to bite you in your ass like it just did now. Well, that's all I got for you guys today. If you made it to this point in the episode, thank you so much for watching. Thank you so much for tuning in every single week and subscribing and liking the video and sharing it. You guys are honestly, look, you're making my dream come true. I never thought that I'd have an audience this large where I can talk about politics and really feel as though I'm making a difference. And you guys facilitate that without your help, without you viewing it every single week. Humanist support wouldn't exist. So thank you all so much. Uh, Sorry to get corny for a minute, but every once in a while I just kind of reflect on the progress that we've made, and it, it you know it feels really good. And you guys are definitely to thank. You should feel responsible for really helping to further political dialogue in the country, which we definitely need right now. So thanks for tuning in. I'll see you guys next week. Have a good day.